Now, we've been doing this for, for a while now, and I'm afraid, actually I know, because I've heard some folk, they've, they've, they've taken inventory and they've already fallen behind. And they're saying, oh, no. I mean, some folk are already substantially behind, so much so that there could be some guilt and there can be some disillusionment and there can be some, oh, yeah, forget it. I just can't do this. It's going to be a long year. I've got to have this coming on me all year and I'm already so far behind. I'm not. Listen, here's what we want to do. Um, in your mind, take all of your guilt and all your disillusionment, kind of put it in a ball. And I say, count to three, when I hit three, throw it at me, metaphorically, okay, just kind of throw it up here, and one, two, three, go. All right, wonderful. Now, what you need to know is it's gone, because as your pastor, what I'm able to do is I'm able to pronounce you clean and guilt-free in this regard, because the goal is, is really not that you read the whole thing, and I, I hope many of you do, but the goal is that we have daily experience in God's word, right? The goal is, the ultimate goal is that we daily are having our lives sharpened by God's word. Now, there may be some folk who maybe are newer or maybe for whatever reason they didn't start reading way back when in January. They wish they would have, but again, now they're thinking I'm so far behind. Not an issue because the goal is not that you read the whole thing. It's daily. So this is what you need to do. You can stop off at the info booth. You can get on our web page, or you can get the. Uh, do you have the U version app on your phone or your device? It's the best Bible app out there. It's free, so it's fantastic. U version, Y O U version, um, and uh, you can download when it says reading guides and eat this book reading guide right on there. So start today. Whatever the text is today, start. And don't forget, don't worry about going back and catching up, maybe sometime in the future, but, but you can still do this starting today. Now, if you are reading all the way through and you're on the, the reading plan, then you are in the middle of the book of Leviticus. Can I get a groan, right? No, no, it's not that bad of a thing. Actually, if you really focus and you pay attention, Leviticus is, is halfway decent book. We'll get into that a little bit more in, in the, the, the few minutes. But let me remind us of this. Leviticus is some radically new culture stuff, a different culture from ours. And an immature way to look at a new culture is to say this is stupid, this is useless, this is dumb, this makes no sense. Immature way to view a different culture. You know, their, their culture's inferior, mine is superior. The mature way is to say, man, there's a lot of stuff here I don't understand. But I'm guessing they had a reason for how they're doing it. And be patient and seeking to learn. That's the right that's the right perspective. And if you continue on, then you know what? Next Sunday, by next Sunday, you will have finished the book of Leviticus. And you can pick up your I Survived Leviticus sticker. It's a blue ribbon, actually. Now, I've already finished Leviticus, so I grabbed mine. Now, you can't, even if you've already finished, because they're not available yet, you'll get yours next week. So next week, you can get an I Survived Leviticus sticker to demonstrate your perseverance. Wear it proudly because you accomplished a great feat. Okay, now, Le Leviticus. Well, first of all, you're probably wondering how come there's a garbage can uh, up here? What is, what is with this deal? Well, um, garbage. You know, we produce waste. 4.3 pounds a day the average American produces. That's roughly over 117,000 pounds of garbage individual produces in America. They live the average expected lifespan. 
Now, it's just coming from, from beginning to end. Now, a couple things about garbage. I'm guessing you, you have some in your home and you've got lots of receptacles all over the place. But with our garbage, we usually don't spotlight it. You know, you usually don't put it front and center. In your home, you, you don't have track lights on your garbage can. You usually have it hidden somewhere, don't you? Under a cabinet, behind a cupboard door, maybe you got a really cool looking trash compactor that looks like part of the cabinetry and you, you, you hide it. It's, it's not where everybody can see it. The second thing about trash is you have to take it out all the time, don't you? I mean, at some point in the week, I don't know, maybe it's Saturday morning for y'all, whenever, whenever you, you, you gather all the garbage, you go through and you empty all the receptacles and you, you put them in the barrels and then at the right time in the week, you drag them out to the curb where you paid some people to come and, and haul your garbage away. It would be really nice, wouldn't, wouldn't it at that point to kind of like, there, I'm glad that's done, but you turn around and the cans are already half full again. You have to continually be doing that because we continually produce garbage. It's just continual. Now, if I had invited you over to my home for dinner and you came over to our house and you, 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 you brought you into our living room, because you know, the living room is a place where you know there's community and fellowship and you, you sit in the living room and, and we're sitting on the other side, but in the middle of the living room floor... There's all this kitchen garbage. And we didn't even put it in the can. We just kind of dumped it there. And you can tell from looking at it that we haven't taken it out. And this is, you know, the mashed potatoes and the banana peels and the yogurt cups. Have, and it's just, it's just, and it's stinking and it's smelling. And you're sitting on one side of the room, we're on the other, and we're trying to talk and converse and have a great time. You're gagging. And you're going, not only are these people are crazy, but I can't have fellowship with them because this stinking garbage is in, it's not, you know. The garbage is not supposed to be in the middle of your living room. It's just not. And you can't have community. You can't have a relationship with this big pile of stinking garbage. Someone has to take this out. Now, two things about garbage. You know that it has its place. Center of the living room is not it. And you know it has to be dealt with on a regular basis. On a regular basis. If you can understand those two concepts about garbage has its place, it needs to be dealt with, then you are well on your way to understanding animal sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. It, it's it's same sort of concept. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. Don't know when the last time was you heard a message on Leviticus. Don't, know, don't ask me when the last time was I preached a message on Leviticus. But Leviticus chapter 1. We'll start right in at the beginning. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said to him, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Well, first of all, uh, this, this 
want to give credit here to a guy by the name of Tim Mackey. Tim is a pastor, Hebrew scholar, and I have greatly appreciated his work, his teaching on Leviticus. If you notice, if you notice this, you've got the, the tenth of meeting thing. Moses goes there, he hears the Lord. Also, when you bring your animal sacrifice, it has to be at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You have to say, well, what is the tent of meeting? What is that about? Well, remember these guys you got out of Egypt, right? And they are the ten plagues. And they got to, God takes them on the way to the Holy Land, Promised Land. But he stops off at Mount Sinai. Remember last week for the Sinai Conference and Retreat Grounds where he gives them the Ten Commandments. They're there a full year. And God gives them all kinds of other commandments. Really the whole back end of the book of Exodus. God gives them all those things. He also gives them, real important, the blueprints to something called the tabernacle. Now while they are there... At Sinai, they begin building. They actually finish. They begin. They build this tabernacle before they're going to move on. They build this thing. And you can't overemphasize how big of a deal this tabernacle thing is throughout the rest of the Bible. Throughout uh, Judaism. You, you, understanding this is, is this the key piece of the puzzle, the picture of what the Bible is all about. I mean, in, in Exodus, you got the blueprints. They build this thing. In Leviticus, you can, so really how it operates in Numbers, they're in the wilderness wandering. They're tearing this thing down and setting it up and turning it down and setting it up as they move. It's a portable type of structure. Deuteronomy, Moses says, when you get into the promised land, he kind of hints that there'll be a, a, a place, a town that God chooses and there it will be built. And David, King David, several hundred years later, and, and his son Solomon especially, they take this portable structure and they make it permanent. They put in real walls and this is called the temple. And the temple goes throughout the rest of the, the Old, Old Testament. It's, it's, it's huge issue. Matter of fact, the kings of Israel would be considered a good king or bad king versed, based on how they viewed the temple. Jesus comes to the temple. It's a really, really big deal. And you're going to find it, its conclusion in the book of Revelation, like so many other things. Now you ask yourself, well, why is this such a big deal? Because in all honesty, reading about this thing and the furniture that goes in it, it's a bit painstaking, isn't it? You know, you got cubits this and cubit that. And how many times? You know, there are over 50 chapters in the Bible that talk about this. And you haven't read half of them yet. So, so be encouraged. There's more is coming. You know, oh, why is this such an important deal? Well, this is, this is why. Remember back in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates everybody, right? He, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden of God, the garden of Eden, which was a real literal place, but it was symbolic of the presence of God. They were with God, perfect God, man, perfectly united. They walked together. There was fellowship. Amos says, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? Man and God are agreed. They, they have perfect relationship. But then Genesis 3, you remember, they are kicked out of the garden because they sinned. And think about what that means. Now, it's not just now life is hard. Or now they've got weeds and now they're fighting. And all that's true. But they're kicked out of the presence of God. This makes sense, doesn't it? A holy, perfect God, when mankind was holy and perfect, not a problem. But now that mankind isn't, they're separated. But you know, God still wants to be with his people. Even though they're broken, huge, he still wants to be with them. Well, what's the solution? Well, he comes up with a solution, the tabernacle. Now, in the tabernacle, see there's a big old tent structure in the middle of it, see that? Well, that, that has got two rooms in it. The front room, it's pretty, two-thirds of the thing, is called the holy place. There's some special furniture in there. It's where the priests would go in there and meditate and pray. But then there's a back room. 
And it's called the most holy place. There's one piece of furniture in there. And where that is, is that's, that's really the, the box that holds the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant, they call it. Came to symbolize the very presence of God. Well, that's back in that back room. They got, it's curtained off. No one can go in it. No one goes in that room because mankind can't go into the very presence. He can get pretty close, but he can't go into the very presence of God anymore since he's been kicked out of the garden. He can't. Also, in the, in the courtyard, there's really, there's lots of animals and stuff in this one, but there's really two pieces of furniture. There's a, they call it the laver. It looks like that big bird bath right before the, uh, uh, the tabernacle proper. That's it it what it was. The priests would come in, they would wash, and they washed off the blood, but they would also, it was like, it was like a, a baptism because they'd go to the altar right before that, and that's where atonement was made, sacrifice was made, and then they would go to the laver, and they would wash, symbolizing that they were clean before they walked into pretty close to the presence of God. Second piece of furniture was the altar. And the altar is where sacrifices were made. And from this point on, blood and guts throughout the whole Old Testament, right? Lots and lots and lots of animal uh, sacrifices. Um, Leviticus, again, look at, look at the text. Because you say, well, 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 why? Well, why? Look at the end of verse 4. He says, he's going to do all this. He's going to get the, the offerings going on. That it may be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. To make atonement for the person. To make a, atonement for him. You've got to ask yourself, what is God doing here in this whole book? I think this is a very important book, actually, because what God is doing is God is trying to establish a perspective on something, a new worldview that's completely contrary to not just the worldview of this time, but but our worldview. And so one of the reasons why we struggle with Leviticus is because we and God, we're not on the same page. God's got a perspective, and we got kind of a different perspective. Now that's, that's, that's part of, of this, this issue here. And so he talks about it's, it's to make atonement. So what, what happened, the, the text says, is a family, whole family unit, would go up to the gate of the, the tabernacle. Let's say they've blown it. They, they're remembering that they got all the Ten Commandments, which are representative of the 600 and something commandments. And they know that they've really messed up. And so they go as a family. Let me mention this too, because this is important to understand as we read the scripture. The Bible had a strong emphasis, all the, all the peoples at that point, and this will really help in a lot of ways, but the peoples at that point had a strong emphasis on corporate solidarity. What do I mean by that? That means this. Say tonight in the game, Peyton doesn't throw a single interception. And not only that, he throws for 500 yards, which is like kind of a miraculous thing. And he throws five touchdowns. And he has got the best passer rating of any quarterback in the whole history of football for a single game tonight. But still, let's say the Panthers beat him. At the end of the game, Peyton Manning cannot say, well, I won. No, no, because as a team, you win or you lose. It's a team thing. It's not an individual thing. The corporate solidarity says, as a family, we are guilty or we're not guilty. It's not, family wasn't just a bunch of little individuals. We were a team. And so we were guilty or not guilty. And so the family comes to the, the, the uh, beginning of the, 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 the temple, the tabernacle. 
And what they've done is, according to the text, they have chosen a, a lamb, an animal of some sort. And so they've got their, their lamb. Except for theirs is alive, but that would make such a mess. So we didn't do that this morning. But that, so they bring their, their, their lamb. And then what happens, and this is the best they have of their flock. Or they have to go buy one. Can't be a crippled lamb. Can't be something that looks like it's going to die anyway shortly. No, no, it's going to be the best one. They bring it to the, to the, the, the gate of the tabernacle. And the dad, representing the whole family, puts his hand on the head of the animal. And then he confesses. And he confesses out loud. He says, uh, God, you know, we've, as a family, we haven't loved each other the way we should. And we've pretty much dishonored one another. Uh, we do it on kind of a regular basis, and uh, we're sorry. And as a family, you know, we've, we've gossiped about other people, and that was really not good. And um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. And as a family, you know, we would be selfish at times and we'd be prideful at times and we would um, not do good things when we were supposed to. Remember most people stopped by the other day and they needed something and we made up some excuse and we don't do the things that we're supposed to and and we have twisted the truth a little bit as well and you, you know all about that. And so he would go on and confess all the sins of the whole family. They're all standing right there and somehow what the picture is is the sins are being transferred from the whole family through the, the dead Onto the lamb. And then what happens is the, the, the priest. Sometimes the dad would, would, take, would take a knife. And what he would do is he'd put a bowl underneath. He'd take the lamb. And he would slice its throat. So the blood would drain into the bowl. The whole family's right there watching this. And they're watching as this, this lamb then would, would, would die. Then with the, you can imagine the effect that would have on the, on the people. You might say, well, that's, that's child abuse to make your chi- kid watch that. Well, most of these kids were farm kids, okay, at this point in history. So it's probably more traumatic for a city kid. But maybe the traumatic thing is part of it. Maybe that's what God has in mind. And then what they would do with, 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 the, with the sheep or goat or whatever, they would, they would butcher it and according to whatever the sacrifice was. If it was a, the meat would go whatever directions. If it's a burnt offering or a sin offering, they burn the whole thing up. If it's a fellowship offering, the people get half of it, the priest gets part of it, you know, that kind of a deal. But the important thing is not the meat. The important thing is this bowl of blood. And so they would take the blood, the priest then would, and he would go to the, the altar and he would sprinkle some on the altar. And the scripture says that what would happen is atonement would be made for you. If that's what it says, right? Atonement. When's the last time you used the word atonement? It's not a real normal word, is it? You don't use it every day. Well, well, atonement has a substantial meaning. Let's just look at the next slide. In, in English... The word is atonement. And, and take that word apart for a minute. There's three words in there. Can you see them? They're right there in order. It's not mixed up. At one meant, right? And, and the word means this. The, wor- the word speaks of two people sitting on either side of the living room. But there's a pile of stinking garbage between it. And they, they can't fellowship and they can't be together. But when the garbage is removed, the two are made one. At one meant. They're put back together. That which separated is removed. The Hebrew word is kapur. We'll hit that in just a second. But the meaning is to cover over. 
It's to pay a ransom. It's like this. It's like you go to the uh, restaurant. You and I go to the restaurant and we decide ahead of time, you know what, I'm going to pay for mine and you pay for yours. And so we eat the meal and we have fun. And, we, and then the bill comes and I go, oh, I don't have my wallet. Now, we've got some trouble going on, right? Because we all know somebody has to pay this bill. And so my friend, maybe, hopefully, he might look and say, hey, 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 don't worry about it. I've got you covered. Covered. But if he says, you know, I only brought enough for me because I knew what I was going to order, so I'm really sorry, I call in the manager and I talk to the manager, and maybe the manager would say, well, probably not, but he might say, don't worry about it, I've got you covered. The, the idea that God is, is hitting here is that forgiveness always has a price. I mean, in the restaurant, either my friend's going to pay if I can't come up with the money, or the manager's going to pay because that food cost him something. You have to pay. There has to be. And so we might say, well, why all these animal sacrifices? Can't God just say, you're forgiven and it's fine? No, he can't. It's not even that he doesn't want to. He can't. Your thought that God can do anything is mistaken because God can't lie. God can't make a rock so big that he can't pick it up. There's a handful of things God can't do. Anything that's against who he is, he can't do that. Can God just whisper this away? No, there has to be a price. Forgiveness requires that somebody pays. It just does. That's the way it, it, it is. It's the way it, it's supposed to be. What God is doing with this is he's getting into the face of his people. And he's saying, you can imagine as the people are watching this thing die. He's saying, sin is a big deal. I mean, it's a life or death thing. It's a big deal. And today, you know, we, I don't know where we've come up with this. I can see it makes sense in some ways. But it definitely has no biblical bearing. Where we think there are some sins that are not a big deal. That, that sin is a big deal based on what? How many people it's hurt. Right? Nobody got hurt. It hasn't hurt anybody. And so something that someone does that hurts lots of people. That's a really bad thing. But if it hurts just a few people or not as bad. And if it doesn't hurt anybody in my mind. Well it's not a big deal. But I, 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 it's, it's just a white lie. Yeah, I know I, I cut the corner a little bit, but you don't know how much time that saved. I'm supposed to be a good steward of time and all. And so, yeah, no, it was, it was, it's not a big deal. It's just my girlfriend and I, and we both are consenting. What do you, it's, it's not a big deal. It didn't hurt anybody. Well, two things. First of all, I wonder where we got the authority that our judgment of whether or not it hurts anybody is the final word. I wonder where that came from. Uh, God says it is a big deal. Also, is it possible that it's a bigger deal than we know? Years ago, we did a mission trip, different place. Uh, Teresa and I were taking these kids to uh, Costa Rica. And we planned this thing a year in advance, and we're uh, co- bottom line is is Therese, uh, uh got pregnant, and the baby was going to be due the time we were supposed to be in Costa Rica, so she and I couldn't go, but they still went. Well, a couple of a handful of kids went who were um, questionable kids. You know, you know, they say, nah, are their hearts really in missions and for the God? Uh, but maybe it'll be good and change them. You know, we've all said those kind of things. And so we send this trip. Well, at one point, three of the kids 
decided to ditch their work detail, sneak off in the middle of the day, small, not a huge town, but sneak off in the, huge, in the middle of the day to a bar. They go in the bar, they order a drink. Uh, well, the leader's going to send them home after they finally found him. They said, you're going home. And the kid's response was, get this, it would surprise you, I know, it's not a big deal. What are you talking about? It's not, we didn't, no one got hurt. It's not a big deal. We didn't get drunk. What do you, it's not a big issue. You're making it too big of a deal. It's not a big deal. Well, the missionary there talked to them. He said, oh no, you don't understand. In our town, everybody knows everything. And, and that, that bar is associated with all kinds of, of evil. When you walk into that bar, it's like the opposite of a church. You walk in there, you are you're almost a worshiping Satan thing. Anything goes. It's, 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 it's spiritual anarchy. It's, it's moral anarchy. Whatever you want to do, it works there. That's the place when you say, forget God, I'm going to do what I want to do. And for years... We've been telling people in this town, there is life outside that bar. You don't need to go in there. You can find forgiveness for the things you've done in that bar. And Jesus, you don't need that. And our people who've been saved out of that, we've been telling them, you don't have to go back to that lifestyle. And then they hear that the missionaries come. And they go to that bar looking for a good time. You have ruined years and years of work. Thank you very much. You've come here in a short time. You've destroyed the testimony of Jesus in this town. Now, is it possible? Things that we think, that's not a big deal. God is saying, you have no clue. That it is a big deal. You just don't know it. Everybody does it. Does not work with God. This is a big, big deal. God is getting in their face. You wouldn't want a God who says, it's forgiven, don't worry about it. If you went to court, right, with somebody, mean, wicked guy that hurt 50 kids pretty substantially, and one of them were your child, and he's there, and he's got a smirk on his face, and the judge says, well, what do you say? And the guy says, well... You know, I'm sorry. And the judge said, well, okay, I guess. You know, if you're sorry and all, okay, hey, you can go free. You would not think that that judge was merciful or that judge was gracious or that judge was kind because he was very unmerciful and ungracious to you, the parents of the children who were hurt, to those children, you would think this guy is not about justice. Uh, And unrighteousness was done here. Well, God... We'll stand looking at the world. Seven billion people in the world. Each one of us regularly making garbage. Sin, 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 sin. Decisions that, that result in pain and hurt and war and genocide and insecurity and fear. Decisions that that break up families, that destroy relationships, divisions, uh, sins, choices that divide the world further and further and alienate people farther and farther from God himself. He's looking at that, saying, you know what, this is a big deal. We need to do something. You've got to know, sin is a big deal. So let me ask, is our perspective on sin and its consequences a Leviticus perspective, God perspective, or is it more world perspective? It's not that big of a thing. It's not that, it's not that big of a deal. 
But this comes, this atonement thing comes with a promise, doesn't it? Because the animal kind of covered over you. It took the hit for you. I can imagine people with their hands on the thing and they're convincing their sins, remembering that God says that the day you sin, you shall surely die. These are my sins. I'm the one supposed to die. The lamb didn't do anything. And maybe the lamb kind of shoots its eyes over you and says, hey, don't worry about it. I've got you, you covered here. But you, you recognize that it does. There's atonement. And wouldn't you think, wouldn't you just think that, that going through that process, that ritual, would make you say, sin's a big deal. You know what? Man, there's not another lamb that's going to have to die because of me. I am done with that. Wouldn't you think that? I'm not, I don't want to go through this again. No, it doesn't work that way. Because we keep piling up garbage. And the, 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 the sacrifices kept happening day after day and week after and weekly and monthly. Uh, during the high holy days, a lot more sacrifices. Once a year, the day of atonement. They call this Yom Kippur. Yom is day. Day of atonement. The, the, the head priest, the big kahuna priest guy would take an animal. He'd put his hands on the head and he would confess the sins for the nation. Corporate solidarity kind of thing. And they would take the blood. And then the high priest, only once a year. Remember I said you couldn't go in that back room where the ark was? Once a year you could. High priest only. He would take that blood, he'd walk into that box that had the Ten Commandments in it, the commandments that they all broke a gazillion times, and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the box. We've broken all these rules, God. But you said when we sin, we shall surely die. Death has been paid for our sins, and they would be covered over. The peop- see, the people knew. Back in Genesis 3, when this whole sin thing first started, God, they're not even kicked out of the garden yet, but God's kind of yelling at them. He talks to Eve, he talks to, to Adam, and he's now talking to Satan. In Genesis 3, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He's talking to Satan here, right? He, who's that he? Well, it's obviously one of the women's offspring, but it's, but it's singular, He will crush your head, Satan, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. He's going to get hurt in the process. It's a promise. So they're dealing with the the sacrifice, the the goats and the lambs and the bulls, but they know that that the bulls and goats, that's not really one of the offspring of Eve. One day, one day, man comes on the scene. He's named Jesus. It's a common name, but it means Jehovah saves. John sees him. This is, you know, 1,400 years future to what you got going here in Leviticus. John sees him in John 1.29. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom or an atonement for many. In Second John, First John 2, 1 and 2, says, for, Dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. We should not sin. We shouldn't try to sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. When Jesus died, because he was God, you know what? All of those sacrifices in Leviticus that were a picture of him, that whole system ended. He was the final sacrifice for our sins. Now maybe this morning you're here, and you're Christ's follower, but your heart has grown cold regarding sin. You don't see it Leviticus style, you see it world style. You see it's not a big deal. Everyone's doing it. It, the, the world, they don't even care that you do it. I don't even get in trouble for this one. It's not a big deal. How big of a deal can it be? And you've embraced some stuff that you ought not to embrace. This morning, the biggest issue for you this morning is perhaps repentance and coming back to do I trust God or not. He says it's a big deal. Is my mind going to be shaped by what he says or is it going to be shaped by what the world says? How am I going to handle this? What's my perspective on sin and its consequences? Or maybe you're here this morning and you know what? You've never, you're, you would not classify yourself as a Christ follower. You might say, I'm a Christian. I go to church once in a while. I, I'm, I try to be good. I do good things. I, I like the Bible. I throw some money in the plate on occasion. I'm a good person. But you would not classify yourself as, as a Christ follower. You know, do you understand the grace that's being offered to you? Do you understand that the stuff you have in your life, because we all have piles of garbage, God says, I want to make atonement for it. And I'm using my son to do so. Maybe you've come to church off and on, and you've even taken communion a gazillion times, and it's just kind of a nice ritual. Uh, but the only reason you would think that is because the reality of what it symbolizes is not inside. Atonement has not been made for you. You've not taken advantage of it. So for you, the, we're going to take this in a minute, but here's the greatest thing. For you, perhaps this morning when you take communion, you might partake of it in reality. And what that would mean is right now, before we partake of it, you commit your life to Christ. You thank him for dying for you. You repent of your, your sin. You give him control of your life. You recognize that, that his death covers you. And then as you partake, you know what? It's the reality of what has happened inside is demonstrated outside. Would you pray with me? And I want to give you just a second as you bow your heads with me to pray. If you have never committed your life to Christ, certainly you may right now you don't get rid of your garbage by just doing better things, by cleaning the floor better. It has to be taken out, but it's beyond your ability to take it out. God covers. So you can say, dear Lord, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for covering over my garbage. I give you myself now. I pray for your forgiveness. I ask that by your spirit, you would remind me daily that my sins, past, present, and future, are covered by you, by the blood of Jesus. Lord, thank you for granting us that. And thank you for bringing us to even this point where we might celebrate it in a very special way. Would your spirit be here? Would you open our eyes and our heart 
in your son's name.